Hey everybody, welcome to the Real DMC Podcast. Come on, if there's any time you can do it. What? Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> uh -oh, looks like we're... Isn't it, isn't it see you at the party, pal? No, it's welcome. Is it welcome? Party. It's welcome to the party, pal. All right, now don't fuck up my intro this time. All right. Fucking up, I'm adding, I'm, I'm enhancing it. I don't know about that. Eat it, Harvey. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the Real DMC podcast. Real DMC stands for Dave, Marcus, and Colin. I'm here with Marcus and Colin. What's going on, guys? Nada. Yeah, it's just another boring <laughs> afternoon. Oh, I love the enthusiasm and the energy. And it's good that you're bringing that because today, the topic of our conversation is the 1988, the greatest action film ever made, Die Hard. It's Christmas Eve in LA. California. And New York cop John McLean has come to see his wife. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die hard. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? Do you guys agree with that? Greatest action movie ever made? Hundred uh, percent. Probably. I don't. What, know. I mean, what's the competition like? Terminator Two, I'd say. T Two's uh, up there. T Two to me is more of a like sci-fi. Sci I, I don't know if I would count that as a pure action movie. So maybe we'd have to define action movie, well, which in my mind is kind of sci-fi action. I mean, it's, there's tons and there's tons of action. I, yeah. It is the greatest cop movie with a skyscraper and terrorists. I think it's more <laughs> than that, but okay. Okay, all right. It's very specific. How about can we uh, just start by getting the uh, "Is Die Hard a Christmas movie?" question out of the way? It is a Christmas movie. <laughs> it is not a Christmas movie. It's, it's so not. fucking stupid that people it, talk about it being a Christmas movie. It's a retroactive Christmas movie. It takes place. It's a movie that takes place at Christmas. There is a Christmas song at the beginning of the movie. Granted, it is by Red DMC, but I don't care. It's a really good song. It's one of my so, so Marcus thinks it's a Christmas movie. Colin, do you think it's a Christmas movie? No, I said it's a movie that takes place at Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, you need like Santa Claus and magic and shit like that if you want to be a Christmas movie. Right? I find it kind of annoying that as great as this movie is, the, the one topic of conversation that seems to come up again and again is whether or not it's a Christmas movie. So come on, you, man. Why'd you ho, bring it ho, up then? Ho, well, because I just want to get it out of the way and then we don't have to talk about it again. That's that's why. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun. This is a Christmas movie. Ah, Jesus. It's, it's All right. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho. Yeah, it takes place at Christmas, but I'd I'd say you know like on December twenty fourth after you know the kids have gone to bed, they're on Die Hard. That's right. That's that's what I always do on every Christmas Eve. Okay, just on that topic though, like what company has a Christmas party on Christmas December Eve? December twenty fourth, Christmas Eve, and, and the Japanese, goes late. They, the Japanese didn't really get the the memo like, on that. I'm like, come on, like, and they're going like, what time is it? Like nine o'clock at night? No, no, it's like five o'clock. It's like dark. No, not when he gets there. Holly McLean does actually mm -hmm. tell one of the kids not to snoop around the house to look for presents as well. So apparently they're not going with for the Santa Claus myth on this one. So they have to like uh, wait up until they, they get home from the Christmas party and then look. 
Here, here's my take on this. Um, the Christmas party was probably going to end around seven o'clock. Unfortunately, some terrorists came and well, <laughs> changed their plans. Maybe they look like they were ready to go for a while. In the book, they're like doing blow and having a full disco too. But we can oh yeah, I want to actually talk. We should talk about the book as we go through this. How about just starting with when's the last time you saw this movie? Last week. <laughs> last weekend. I, I I watched one. I actually watched one this week. Okay. Good. Hey, Marcus watched the movie this time. All right, we're already off to a better start than usual. I would Colin? say the, the time before this would probably be ten years. Okay, so yeah, I, I watched it with Emily last weekend. We had a great time. She loved it. And before that, it was probably about maybe a year or two. Because I actually realized that I probably had not sat down to watch this movie for 15 to 20 years. I was in your boat about three years ago. And then I sort of like rediscovered, oh, shit, Die Hard. You know, but I realized one of the reasons why I didn't watch the movie is because I wanted to save it and savor it because we watched it so many times when we were younger in a row over and over again that and still even watching it you know you know almost every single line as you go through it and I hadn't seen it for that long but I have to say upon rewatch it was a it was a joyously fun experience I loved it I had a great time I was just sitting there watching it last night it was the most fun I've had watching a movie in a while loved it it's a good one yeah it, it is really, really, really fun, and it just brings back all the the memories and the nostalgia of watching it over and over and over again. Because you're right, there's a point of saturation with rewatching a movie where you start you, you're thinking, "Oh, I'm going to watch this movie," and then it, the plot just starts like going scene by scene through your mind like super fast, and you're like, "Do I really want to watch this again?" Right. Like, <laughs> like it's almost like the pop song, like a song that's really good, but then it just gets overplayed on the radio at least back in the day when there was radio and you just like, I do not want to hear the song again, but now like watching it, like it's still like really, really does hold up and you like lose having that gap in between kind of, you know, you forget about that like pop nature of it and you just enjoy it. Also watching it now with a different focus with a more sort of critical eye, just kind of, you know, looking at things to see if I could see things that I hadn't seen before. And there were several things that I noticed that I have never actually really picked up on, or at least didn't pay attention because maybe it's the, difference in the age and the fact that we're you know now watching movies as part of this podcast so different approach it, to it it's definitely great fun watching it after watching tango and cash and realizing like <laughs> all the things that <laughs> miss from tango and cash <laughs> I mean, when you look at tango and cash as a movie and then you can compare it to this because this, like, movie, oh this movie is genuine artistry all the way through and and we should we can talk about a bunch of stuff but you know the script the score the way that Jan Dubont shoots it i mean it's just it's fantastic and I, I, I was texting Colin, you know, or, or you guys last night, and I said this movie is damn near flawless, or is flawless. Like, it, you know, up until maybe the very end, which we can I won't step on my thoughts in terms of why this movie is only ninety-seven percent a masterpiece. I do, I do have that as the the ending is lame. Uh, Jan Devant's greatest film since Leonard Part Six, for sure. <laughs> From a cinematography <laughs> standpoint, <laughs> the uh, now I put that I had that in my notes also. Just like how many like little details are in the movie that make it like so great. We can get in as we go, but I was actually really surprised at the level of sort of nostalgia that really kind of washed over me when I watched this movie. And I realized that this is actually this was sort of a significant movie in our lives when we were growing up because I was thinking about it, why is this so significant you know one was just that it was a great movie and it caught us at just the right time in watching it the second thing is that we all worked at a movie theater where this was playing and we used to actually go in late at night after everybody else had left the theater and we would throw we would watch die hard at 12 o'clock at night and 
drink beer and have a good time. And remember, Marcus, we had that one night where people started throwing bottles down, you know, oh, onto the stage. <laughs> and so we walked into the theater to open it the next day and it smelled like a brewery, like when you walked in. It's so bad. So we were a little nervous about that. But even that, that at the theater, it didn't just uh, play there. Like it opened in like the theater we worked at was like kind of a, kind of a second run theater. It wasn't really the top notch stuff. We didn't really have big openings. And it kind of showed that Die Hard was not really expected to be that big of a film when it opened. Yeah. And then when this, I remember when the standee came in to help promote it, we were making fun because that, that moonlighting guy was going to be a, a, a tough cop. And it's like 12 terrorists, one cop. The odds are just the way he likes them or something like that. And the odds are like, against John McClane. It's just the way he likes it. And by the way, yeah. if you want that standee, I still have it in my garage because you and I both have our names <laughs> on the back of it in terms of uh, who nice. gets to keep it. So it might be time to rotate it over to you. Yeah, I, I, I concur. I had completely low expectations when I uh, saw this movie come out. And, um, and I, I just thought that the name of the movie was so ridiculous. Now it's just like, it's just omnipresent. You don't even think about what die hard means. It's just die hard, die hard. And you think greatest action movie ever. Which is, well, and it's also die hard on a, as a way to describe other movies too, right? Yeah, it's, so. it's, it has since become, it's just like spawned a whole genre of action films. Speaking of which the movie comes from a book that Colin, did you know what the name of the book was? Nothing lasts forever. Yeah, yeah. So like, uh, I just started reading it this week. I uh, lost enthusiasm as Dave spoiled the ending for me. Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't think you were actually reading. I thought you were just giving, <laughs> they were just joking around because you actually did read Dune. Yeah. But the book is not quite the same as the movie. The doc, it's a, his wife has passed. Uh, I think she's been passed for like eight years. Uh, and he's going to visit his daughter in LA. And then uh, he's also quite a bit older. He's like in his 60s. He was like a pilot or whatever in World War II. Yeah, he shot down like 40 Nazi planes. He was like somewhat famous. Um, yeah. And the book takes place in 1979, so whatever that would be, like 30 years after the war, 35 years after the war. Yeah, he's got to be like pushing 60, right? Yeah, he's be right around there for sure. Because his, his daughter is an executive at the... Not, Klaxon. Not company, the, yeah, Klaxon the oil, oil company. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's he, a little bit, as I recall, Marcus, the, 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 it, I think it's Anton Gruber, right? Not Hans Gruber. Isn't it? Yeah. It's An- little Tony, Tony, little Tony, little, good, little Tony Gruber. Good, good change, <laughs> by the way. Good change there. Yeah. They're actually in the, in the book, as I recall, they they are somewhat motivated politically in terms of going against the corporation, right? Because they're trying to expose that the oil company made a, I think it was a deal with Chile. Is that right? Like yeah. a, it's more a terrorist for sure. Right. So, so, so it's not just the, the thievery. And what, you know, what's interesting about all this is McTiernan was the one, and apparently when they wrote the first screenplay for this, it was, it, it followed the book a little bit more directly and it was a little harder edged. And McTiernan wanted to, he said he wanted to add some joy to the film. So they changed the terrorist to thieves and that's why he interjected a lot of the, you know, the, the lighter moments and the bits of comedy that are inserted in this movie, which are done remarkably effectively. <laughs> He's it's like, a, hey, can, can we get some joy? Kept telling the composer, can we get some joy? He's like, I'll give him joy. You get ode to joy the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right about that. And I got to say, when I when I was thinking about this, just overall with all the, the different characters, I think there was like really only like four or five characters that I thought were like really sort of serious, smart people. And the rest of them, including like the FBI, the LAPD, and most of the, a lot of the terrorists, we're all fuck ups and <laughs> and and they provided a lot of humor. Yeah, there's more sure. honestly, there was more there was more comedy in this movie than I remember than when I watched it. You know, I mean I remember there were quips and stuff, but it's there's some it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I don't think I think the 
the the movie is definitely this plot in the story i think is way better than the book i think the book's interesting just as a comparison but it's not worth um it's not intended to be a direct i think it's just inspiration for the uh for the movie and it's not as direct because mclean his name's joseph leland in the book right brother to uh jim leland of the uh, pirates no that's that's leland leland leland's a um like um he's not even a police officer he's like a private investigator he's retired yeah, he's, he's, private, he's private, private security now, right? Yeah, he's not okay. really retired. He's doing like consulting for all these places. He actually knew who Gruber was prior to the um, to the event because he's done like uh, terrorist consulting and things along those lines. So he's familiar. Right, but he's with not the like group. he's not actually no. He's a got a police officer it. anymore. He's just... no, 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 no. I don't think he like it was really confusing if he ever was because he was given. He's always been in like police and security, but like the New York badge that he had was like a fake badge that he can carry a gun on the uh, plane. Um, it's a fake badge. It's not of, just a, it's not just his old badge. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was his old badge. I, I can't remember. No, no, no. It's like it was like a fake one they gave him, and it says on the back, "This guy is a prick." <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's like a real badge. It's, it allows you to carry a gun on a plane. But it's given to him by friends of the of the New York police. I'm guessing that that's More probably not something that happens today. No, yeah, probably not. Yeah, that was the first thing I noticed. I'm like, yeah, he just like open gun carry on the plane in the first scene or whatever. We should talk about the the development of the movie a little bit because I I find some of the the history pretty interesting. The, probably the most interesting thing is the fact that Roderick Thorpe, who was the guy that wrote the book, he got the idea for Die Hard. And if you if you read on different columns on the internet, some people say that he went to see the Towering Inferno and he fell asleep while he was watching the Towering Inferno and he dreamt Die Hard, the plot for Die Hard, while he was sitting in the theater. Other people say he simply took inspiration from seeing the Towering Inferno and that's how he went on to write the book that he did. I'm going to go with the latter. It sounds like the same thing. Yeah. Did he fall asleep or not? Maybe that's not a terribly controversial question. <laughs> but, and then the other thing that I, is really interesting, and we should talk about casting in a second, but Willis was offered and then was unable to accept the first time around because of his moonlighting schedule. And then it was because Sybil Shepherd got pregnant and she created an 11-week gap in his availability that he was actually able to do Die Hard at all. So it's kind of funny if you think about that, you know, two factors that influenced the creation of Die Hard you know, one was the movie The Towering Inferno, and then the other one was, was did Sybil Shepherd get pregnant or not? And those two things had to come together somehow. It's a weird combo. Serendipity, man. Serendipity. But the other thing that it was interesting is, so the, the book, Nothing, was, was, I'm sorry, Nothing Lasts Forever, right? Yeah. yeah. It was a sequel to, so same character that, was, that he wrote for a book that he uh, created called The Detective, which was adapted as a film in 1968 with uh, Frank Sinatra. And so because of that, Frank Sinatra had the right of first refusal for the character of John McClane in Die Hard. And, and so they had to offer it to Frank Sinatra, who was 70 at the time, and he decided to pass, which is, which is good because I think that seeing a 70-year-old Frank Sinatra in the role would have been fascinating and probably not as good. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> Welcome to the party. <laughs> Not only did old Blue Eyes pass, um, and he was seventy, but like a lot of major action stars passed on this. Yeah, so I have a actually I have a quick list: Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. He went on to make Die Hard on a Mountain for you know with Cliffhanger. Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson. Richard Dean Anderson, which I thought was an interesting one. So they were going to give MacGyver a shot at uh, Die Hard. And then Paul Newman. Paul Newman actually would have been an interesting one. I, I would have liked to have seen what Paul Newman could have done with it. I think that would have been fun. I, I think if it was Joe Leland, the, the, the strict, like, nothing lasts forever script, yeah. Newman, Newman would have been fantastic. 
but he was he's old he's too old i mean you need a like a younger uh character for this movie and then harrison ford went on to make die hard on air force one so that's you know so there's two names in there i thought were really interesting harrison ford and then uh, mel gibson and mel gibson i think he had wanted die hard and bruce willis had wanted lethal weapon and for whatever reasons they ended up switching both of them ended up you know creating iconic roles and yeah. iconic characters but harrison ford it's interesting i but i i just don't think it would have been as good as as this version with uh with no I, I think Will, willis is perfectly cast yeah. for yeah. mclean as a character it's the it's one of the great meldings of actor and character for sure the other thing that I thought was interesting was they went through a list of women that they were auditioning for the Holly Gennaro part as well, which included Linda Hamilton, Gina Davis, Deborah Winger, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jamie Lee Curtis, Carrie Fisher, and Kelly McGillis. I think all of those are probably too famous for the role. I don't think it's that big enough role for that well-known of a star. It doesn't and I, and I seem... guess I guess it was Bruce Willis himself that saw Bonnie Bedaya uh, in something. Bedelia. Bedelia, sorry. And... Uh, <laughs> And that's you, you. You can be the name corrector on this pod. <laughs> I, I I can be. I am the name corrector on this. Well, pod. That's what I'm saying. It's you know. That's staying. We'll stay in our respective lanes. Marks and I will fuck up the names, and you can clean it up for us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, for the actress, I think I don't know. I think it was just a, it's too small a role for the bigger name stars. Like Gina Davis just won a Best Supporting Actress Academy Award, and it's just not a role. Her role is relatively small in this whole movie. Yeah, Marcus. Well, what movie did uh, Gina Davis win the Academy Award for? Uh, maybe Accidental Tourist. I don't yeah, know. how was that movie? Uh, <laughs> from the sound of it, it was great. <laughs> okay, I got I got a question for you about the cla- the casting. Yeah. So when you first think of uh, trying, I know we're doing a Die Hard pod, but try not to think of the Die Hard pod. When you first mm-hmm. think of Paul Gleason, do you think of Dwayne T. Robinson or Dick Vernon? No, Dick Vernon. I think yeah. Dick Vernon. Yeah, I think so. Breakfast so Breakfast Club kind of wins out. Just for for that particular actor. You know, it's interesting because this movie has like two of, I think, the all-time great asshole actors. Not that they're they're just good at playing assholes. Right. Uh, Paul Gleason and William Atherton. Yeah, William Atherton as Thornburg is fantastic in this. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> Eat it, Harvey. Eat it, Harvey. Just <laughs> <laughs> wondering how fast we're going to get to that. You don't want to give me a truck? I'll go and I'll steal a truck. Hey, give us a break, Thornburg. Eat it, Harvey. Oh, man. I think Harvey has one of my favorite lines in the movie, though, but we'll get we'll get there. Well, so how about just in terms of the, you know, kind of the, the crew and the production? Maybe we can talk about oh, the key, the key grip. Oh, man, that guy, like solid. The best the boy is the best, best boy <laughs> I've ever seen. I thought you guys are enthusiastic about the, uh, the, 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 the cast members that don't usually get called out. So fully artists. Let, oh, man. Let, let's talk cast, man. <laughs> what about the director? How about McTiernan? What do you, what do you, awesome. What the hell happened to McTiernan? That's my question. What do you mean? Uh, well, well you mean I, I mean, I mean I'm, not, I'm not talking about like the wiretapping and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking when you look at wire his... Wiretapping? What? Yeah. What wiretapping? Uh, McTiernan went to prison for a wiretapping criminal case. Were you guys not following this at all? No. Nope. Nope. <laughs> oh. well, th- well, that answers your question. It seems like you know the answer. No, well... That- <laughs> No, I'm well, talking more about how do you go from how do you go from Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, and all of a sudden you end up making Rollerball and Basic, which are two really really bad movies. Basic is a movie that I watched and it, it honestly makes no sense whatsoever, and Rollerball is just flat out terrible. So. Yeah, Basic. I have not seen either one of those films. I'm looking at his filmography, and he's just got a, an amazing 87 to 99 run 
with the possible exception of the last action hero. That's kind of oh, and and Medicine Man. Yeah, so there's a couple of uh, hiccups in there. When I said Medicine Man, it was like a four. When I was talking about the uh, John McTiernan action run. Yeah, yeah. But look, I mean, Hunt for October is fantastic. Die Hard with a Vengeance is actually a really good movie. It's a That's really a good, good movie. sequel. Really good. Thomas Crown Affair is really good. I liked it. The Thirteenth Warrior is actually pretty underrated. And then um, that's what that was in '99. And then yeah, I don't know, Rollerball. I didn't like the original, and this one was—I didn't even know what they were thinking. I don't even—I haven't heard of Basic, and that's it. And that was 2003. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, I, I was curious what happened prior to you know his legal trouble, right? Uh, so it just seems like. 99 it you know maybe was the 13th warrior considered a flop and a failure is that why maybe he got tagged with some of the shitty stuff afterwards i don't, I don't know people seem to forgive if you had a huge hit before because i think mcturnan directed the shit out of this movie <laughs> this movie is amazing in terms of the tightness the efficiency the exposition the way everything works and it, it's just great yeah. so no it's very very like the movie just flows so well together but also like in every scene you kind of know and it's used very properly like the We've talked about before like the geography of the space is yeah. used so well like you know okay he's going in this conference room okay here's the table you can kind of see how it's all laid out and like how he's gonna get escape and all that stuff it really works well yeah which in different movies we've talked about as it's great flawed in like uh, young guns or uh even uh, tango and cash i think was another one like it can go so poor like it's something you don't really pay that much attention to unless it goes really bad and this one like that was one thing i was watching and it's just done so well yeah well, I, I think what he does really well is he works really well in a, like a small space because I think every pretty much every scene in this movie is within a confined space, uh, office, uh, elevator shaft, you know, what have you. It's heating duct. Uh, <laughs> heating duct. Very, very small space. <laughs> feel like a TV dinner. Um, that was, that was yep. the only line I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write it down, but... <laughs> Come out to the coast, have a few laughs. Yeah, he's uh, he just he he really knows what he's doing. So I yeah, I don't know what happened. Well, and and then so Jan de Bont was the cinematographer for this, and the way this movie is shot, it it looks fantastic. And the, you know, and that's one thing that I remember appreciating about this movie when I first saw it and watching it last night. And there are some very you know basic activities, but the way they're shot, it just looks so fluid and smooth and cool. And to me, one of the examples is where they're pulling into to get to the tower, the terrorists are, and you see the two cars going next to each other and the van, you see the van that has most of the terrorists goes down into the garage as it's right next to the car that's pulling in to go around. And it's just a super cool visual effect. And it's, you know, that can be a throwaway moment where you're just basically showing these guys showing up, but it's done so stylistically and so cool. It's just, it's fun to watch. And that, this movie is full of moments like that. Dave, I, I have a note here. Shot of truck driving through city streets at dusk, then driving into the parking garage. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a really well shot scene. Yeah, it looks great, and the and the the faraway shots of the tower when he's going towards the tower, that all looks fantastic. Uh, one of the scenes or one of the shots that I think of is where you you see the the uh, from inside Powell's car when it's looking up through the windshield when the body's coming down out of the tower. Again, that looks great. It it just the way that he sets up the space around Nakatomi when the police come in and they cordon it off. And you, you, you just get a great sense of the geography of the area. I, it's, yeah, this film is shot beautifully. You know, it also gives you a, a great sense of the geography of the area is actually going to Fox Plaza and driving around. Well, let me ask you that. What sort of numbnuts would spend uh, their weekend going and scouting diehard locations? Who would do a thing like that? I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe us. 
Actually, just <laughs> for the record, the three of us did go to Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza, and just uh, we were, and and we at one point walked into the lobby. And do you guys remember the elevator opened and we got in the elevator and somebody had triggered it via key card and all of a sudden we got rocketed up to like the 28th floor or something. And we're like, uh, we just stayed in the elevator until we went back down. So that's as close as we got to uh, getting into Nakatomi Plaza. All right, should we move on to the cast? Because this is a pretty awesome cast. Do it. All right. So uh, we've already talked a little bit about Bruce Willis, but obviously at the time he was coming off of Moonlighting. Were you guys fans of Moonlighting the show? Because I was a big Moonlighting fan. Oh, yeah. I definitely watched it for sure. Yeah. But it was not a, what does it say? Moonlighting, like a lot of people are probably aren't familiar. It was more just pure comedy. It was, he was a private investigator, but it wasn't like any sort of action. Oh, no. It was, like, it was, it was, it was a comedy. It was fit screwball comedy. Screwball a lot, comedy. A lot yeah. of witty uh, repartee. And, uh, you know, I was sort of thinking, like, what is David Addison going to be like <laughs> in an action movie? Yeah. Because yeah. he did not seem that bad. He just seemed like a, he even seemed small in the movie, like in the show. Like not a buff, strong guy. He just seemed like a just an average dude. That was specifically what McTiernan wanted to bring to it because McTiernan was was burned out on the on the, the you know the big muscle bound action star who couldn't be hurt, and so he wanted to take it. He specifically wanted to go in a different direction. That's what attracted him to the material. That being said, this was apparently pitched originally by as Rambo in a skyscraper. Is I think that's how it was actually pitched in terms of when they greenlighted it. So. They had a vision that it was going to be something along the lines of, you know, Commando or something like that. Then they couldn't get Rambo. He goes to a uh, pretty Thank quickly God. to a uh, white tank top and uh, muscle bound. So you always got to get the tank top on. You got to. All right. Well, how about uh, Alan Rickman? You know, what's crazy is this is his first movie. <laughs> I, think, nuts. I think that is absolutely insane. And the story about him, apparently like he, he flew off to Hollywood. He had done some acting in the UK, mostly television, I believe, and stage work. And he flew out to Hollywood and apparently... He was there a week and he got the offer to be in Die Hard and he initially turned it down because he didn't want to be uh, he didn't want to do an action movie. <laughs> He's like, well, this is really easy. Nah, I think I'll wait for the next one to come along. I assume you guys think of him first as Hans Gruber and not uh, uh, Professor Snape. Yeah, because I've only seen, I do I've not only seen of him two of the Harry Potter movies, no. actually. Yeah. So no, they're I, don't, all really I, don't, I don't have the Snape connection at all. I, I still Hans Gruber's first, but definitely Snape is up there when I think of uh, Alan Rickman. Quite honestly, for whatever reason, I'd probably go uh, this first and then maybe the Sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood, just because that's a fun performance of his. <laughs> you know, just what I associate him with. For me, unfortunately, it is uh, Love Actually. <laughs> because I'm, Emily, I'm not, I'm not Emily and I, Love Actually. Yeah, well, you know, it's a oh. movie that you watch with your wife. Over Hans Gruber? But I do like it. No, 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 no. Uh, second, second. second. Oh, okay. <laughs> But th think about the fact that, that uh, how polished Alan Rickman is in this movie. He should have been nominated for an Academy Award, honestly. Like, he no, th this is why I said during our year in review, I was like, why was he not nominated? Yeah, he does a fantastic job. The other one that, um, the other movie that I think I really, really like him in. I mean, he's always great. He really is. Um, Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah, he's like great in Galaxy Quest, actually. Yeah. It's really, that's a really, really good movie. Yeah, Galaxy Quest is great. Very Tony Shalhoub in that movie, by the way, is, is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I think Rickman does such a great job. Like, he's the polished European, but he also, like, just his expressions and the way, like, he's doing, not really a double cross, but he's, like, acting, playing a role as the terrorist. He does, like, such a great job in numerous times of, like, I've read it on Time Magazine. <laughs> like, what the, uh, the different things he does, like, comes across so believable in all of it. It's, he's fantastic. This is Hans Gruber. 
I assume you realize the futility of direct action against me. We have no wish for further loss of life. Well, uh, what is it you do wish for, Mr. Gruber? I have comrades in arms around the world languishing in prison. The American State Department enjoys rattling its saber for its own ends. Now I can rattle it for me. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. Well, he, yeah, and he, I mean, look, uh, Hans, Hans is the one guy that seems like really very smart. He plays it so well, but there's a little bit of like joy there as well. Like, you know, he's like, it's Christmas, Theo. It's the time for miracles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit there, like where he's sort of having fun, but he is cold and devious and very intelligent. They give him multiple opportunities to be both menacing and funny at the same time. The, yeah. the two scenes that come to mind, so where he's threatening Takagi, or, you know, to give him the password or he's going to shoot him. Theo and, uh, was it Carl? Yeah, Carl. Have, a, yeah. have made a bet as to whether or not Takagi's going to give him up. And so they, they reference each other, told you. And then you see Hans Gruber, like, kind of turn and, like, give him the stink eye for a second. And then he goes right back to threatening Takagi. So that's one <laughs> scene that's great. And the other one, of course, is where he has Ellis sitting in front of him. And that whole... That whole sequence is great. And apparently oh, what I didn't know is that uh, Hart, Hart Bachner, who played uh, Ellis, apparently the Hans booby line was improvised. Nice. And so the shot that they have where Alan Rickman is looking at him somewhat confused is because he was actually confused because <laughs> he just threw that out there. <laughs> he, he, just, he doesn't have a bubba? No. He's like, what? He's like, what the hell are you talking about? So I thought that was kind of cool. It's obvious you're not some dumb schmuck up here to snatch a few purses. Am I right? You're very perceptive. Uh, I watch 60 Minutes. I say to myself... These guys are professional. I figure you're here to negotiate, am I right? You're amazing. You figured this all out already. <laughs> hey, business is business. You use a gun, I use a fountain pen. What's the difference? Let's put it in my terms. You're here in a hostile takeover. You grab us for some green mail, but you didn't expect some poison pill was going to be running around in the building. Am I right? Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. I must have missed 60 minutes. What are you saying? The guy upstairs is fucking things up, huh? <clears throat> I can give him to you. That is one of my favorite scenes. Hart Bachner was just killing it in this movie. Yes, <laughs> Ellis is just fantastic. Ellis is a hot mess. He's awesome. <laughs> hey, babe, I negotiate million-dollar deals for breakfast. <laughs> I think I can handle this Euro trash. <laughs> Spreckensy talk? But you know, what, you know what else I love about him is the, the opening scene when Hans Gruber, when he's going through the crowd and he's, you know, going, he's, he's uh, rolling off Takagi's history and then it gets up in front of Ellis and you see Ellis shake his head and go, not me, you know, because he's all coked <laughs> yeah, out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, the boss that he's trying to, you know, his boss is like two people away from him and he's just selling him out, right? Or just protecting himself. He's, 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 a, he's a great weasel. When um, when everyone's panicking, Ellis is pacing around, going like, "Just, it's just everyone stay calm. Everyone yeah. stay calm." And it's like you're the only one who's like not calm right now. Wait, well, get a couple Ellis, lines. Ellis of has coke. done a lot of cocaine in this movie. I think he's <laughs> yes, he a lot did. of cocaine. Yeah. yeah, that was in the uh, in the book too. They were having like because it takes place like in the late seventies. Yeah. A couple of people offer him like uh, weed when he walks in, and like uh, and then there's like coke on the table too and stuff. So. Well, and I think it's that he doesn't like the. I, I think in the book, that's one thing that I remember that was consistent. He doesn't like Ellis because Ellis is yeah. a drug user, right? That's well, because also like his 
his, uh, and his daughter like he's daughter getting his daughter like, on drugs. his daughter's like yeah. banging him right yeah, yeah. exactly he, he thought she was doing drugs too she thought yeah so maybe just a couple more quick mentions on the cast alexander goodenough is there and that that dude is kind of creepy in a good way but there's just something like he's he's just slightly off you mean yeah. Alexander Goodenough or Carl? I'm talking about Carl, the character. Actually, okay. I'm sure I'm sure Alexander's probably a nice guy. I'm just saying that, uh, that they, they, they do a, they do a good job of, kind of, of what was that? He's a ballet dancer. He's a ballet dancer. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, ballet. Pretty sure. Belly so, or ballet? Huh? <laughs> yeah, belly. He's a belly dancer. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, and he gets a little oh, upset my. when his brother gets killed. Understandably. Right. So Bonnie Badia. Anything else you want to say about her? Anybody? I, well. Body Badilla or Body Badilla? Badilla, whatever. <laughs> whatever the fuck her name is. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. John, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Gennaro, Holly Gennaro. Yeah, one thing, I, I still don't quite get that using her last name, even though they're still married. I was wondering why they did it. And then also they, she explains it like, oh, it's a Japanese company. You know what they would think. I'm like, no, I don't know what they would think. Like you're married and like, it made no sense. If... What are you talking about? Did you not grow up in the 80s? I mean... It was, uh, it was the Japanese culture was like very different. They looked down on women working in, like married women working independently and on their own. So she sort of had to hide it. Mm. It's just that's what she means by it. it was, it's right. frowned upon. I don't remember that. I think what it actually meant though is she was cutting ties when she moved out to the West Coast. That's I think they were trying to imply, but yeah, I don't think. So. Well, th there was. The, yeah, I mean, they wanted to set up sort of that tension and dynamic between the two of them because obviously they're. They were, they were having some problems in their marriage. But I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, she was looking forward to seeing him and she wanted to remain married. But, you know, they've had this argument, like you know, a thousand times. But also she asked him, when, like, oh, so where are you staying? He's like, oh, my old bosses or my old captain's out here or something like that. Out in Pomona. <laughs> here at Ramona. Pomona. That's what I said. Pomona. No, I know. But he the, said uh, Ramona. Yeah, well, so, you know, what's interesting is one of the two writers, so I think, I think so Roderick Thorpe wrote the novel, but uh, Jeb Stewart and Stephen D'Souza were the two credited writers on the screenplay. And apparently Stephen D'Souza was out driving in his car as he was working on the script and a truck in front of him, <laughs> the back came open on a truck that was carrying refrigerators and a box fell off and basically landed on his car on the freeway, but it just happened to be an empty box. And so he had a moment of genuine terror and it, it just so happens he had left his house after having a fight with his wife and so he pulled over his car and he and he, that's how he got the idea that to have McLean have the fight with her as the last point of connection so that he had to survive so that he could apologize to her uh, and, and he got that he got that inspiration by having a refrigerator box land on his car on the freeway oh, <laughs> that's pretty interesting yeah I think it was good tension but I think that it wasn't explained yeah I think it's just My, I think it's minor it's, yeah, it's, I think it's set up mainly so she can drop the line at the end in terms of oh, Holly McLean. But even I, I did like the Argyle interaction with him still about like, very smart Argyle. He's like grilling him about it. Yeah, Argyle. Ar I liked Argyle. Argyle was great. Argyle He's was a fantastic. fun character. Um, so, so William Atherton and I think we've talked about Paul Gleason as the, we've kind of touched on those guys, but both just fantastic assholes. Great assholes. Um, anybody else in the cast you want to mention? Well, say Robert Davi as Special Agent Johnson. <laughs> the, the other one? Lo I love the... <laughs> <laughs> no, the other one. Uh, this is Agent Johnson. No, the other one. That's yeah, my, the FBI guys I love. Um, that's my but, unanswerable question. Like, what did someone say to him for him to say no, the other one? <laughs> you know what he said. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? The black one? Exactly. Uh, well, that's, a, that's, one. <laughs> a, that's, I believe, what they were implying. Oh, okay. <laughs> You got, I mean, you got to love Robert Davi. Look, the mayor will have my ass. 
organization? How about the United States fucking government? Hey, lose the grid or you lose your job. <laughs> and the helicopter gunship. The slag fucking Saigon! Facelick! I was in junior high, dickhead. Yeah, it's a great interaction. There was one one person I just wanted to like point out. Gail Wallens, who's the uh, the co-anchor with Harvey Johnson. Yeah. She happens to also have played the police psychiatrist in all of the Lethal Weapon movies. And um, mm-hmm. and you can thank Emily for pointing that out to me. So I know I noticed that for the first time last night. That was one of the, the things that I noticed going through it. I thought, oh my gosh, that, that's it. That's crazy. There is lots of crossover between Die Hard and and Lethal Weapon in a lot of different respects. Yeah, and then the the one like just total throwaway. You got like one twenty second scene, so make the most of it. Walt from the Power Company. Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Central. Uh, this is Walt down at Nakatomi. <laughs> yeah, listen. Uh, would it be possible for you to turn off grid 212? Hey, no shit, it's my ass. I got a big problem down here. Just shut it down. Shut it down now. <laughs> you know, you know what's funny? On my notes last night when I when I, I put I put a little parenthesis around his name, I put MVP, like in terms of for his screen time, like the small moment. Like he brings such great energy. Uh, he, he was he was totally awesome. So I figured there's two ways we could just you know kind of jump into the movie. So one is just talk about think why we like this movie or what just the general thought about a movie or we could go through it and just kind of talk about major scenes or sequences or things that we like you know half the fun of of watching die hard is just like all the all the quotes yeah but when i when i sit there and i i look at my list and i really think about a lot of these quotes i'm going out of context if you have never seen die hard this would make no sense like a lot of the quotes don't really mean anything they're just actually lines of dialogue right they're just they're just so ingrained in my brain <laughs> that you know i will somebody points out hey look at that car I'll be like send in the car send in the car send in the car or when Shit. something's not working it's not happening mike burn it exactly it just jumps into your head <laughs> <laughs> one of the, one of my favorite lines they're interviewing the author of like hostage terrorist, terrorist hostage. A study in duality. <laughs> exactly. They're like, oh, from Helsinki, Sweden, uh, Finland. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And Harvey is just like, Har- he, he like, he like looks at the camera and he's like got this huge grin on his face. Like and, as in Helsinki, Sweden and Finland. <laughs> And then you see it's like his face sort of falls. It breaks just a little bit. Yeah, it's just, it's so great the way he does it. There's so many like little things in it like that. And just so funny. One thing that I just like to discuss is the fact that John McClane is the everyman. That to me is the big defining difference between this movie and every other action movie that was happening in the 80s, particularly the Stallone and Schwarzenegger fair. I love, I love what they do with McClane, the character, because he is a cop through and through. And one of the things, it's actually one of the things that I noticed more watching it last night than I had in the past. You know, when he walks into Nakatomi for the first time, you see him whistling like he's acting casually, but then simultaneously he's also scanning the environment to see where the cameras are and kind of get the lay of the land. So you get the sense that this is somebody who's always kind of on edge and is taking everything in. And they do a really nice job, I think, of just characterizing him as somebody who is really observant, resourceful. What's great about it is he's running, right? It's not, you know, the the first time he goes up on the roof, you know, Carl and a couple of guys are shooting him with guns. 
He's just trying to find a way to get out of there, right? So you see him scrambling, you know, he shoots the door, he jumps through. When he gets injured later and his, you know, he's, he's pulling the glass out of his feet, the, the fact that he's writing notes on his arm, so it's not like he has some superhuman memory, he's just taking notes as he goes. All that really makes McLean, in my mind, as a hero, someone you can identify with and then say that, you know, the Schwarzeneggers or the, the, the you know, Rambo characters, right? Yeah, for sure. And also, like, the start of the movie, like, he not afraid of flying but he hates flying and he's like worried about jet lag and he's got like you know all these like very common problems and like yeah he's like new to california he's like oh Calif- like all these like weird things happening in, in california, in california. <laughs> exactly so it's like he's definitely like out of his place he's not like that tough guy <laughs> like oh i'm just gonna hop on this plane and i'm just gonna be there and be 100 comfortable wherever i am so you can tell like he's also like a little bit unsettled a bit of a fish out of water in yeah. that respect because he's like basically a new york cop Right. And that's what he is. And that that is his identity. And so like David, when you say like, he's always like looking around, he's like, he's like, it's, it's almost like he's never off duty. He's right. That, that, that is who he is. After the scene where Takagi gets shot and he goes out to, and he's hiding in the hallway and you see him there and he, you know, he has his gun kind of resting against his head and he looks genuinely terrified at that point. Like he is, he's afraid for his life. Yeah. And it's just a, it, it's refreshing and, yeah. you know, much more yeah. engaging as a, from a character presence. Cause you don't think that he's just some superhuman dude. Yeah. Think John, think, you know, he's like, yeah, as I say, yeah, yeah it's like, that's like yeah, yeah. His, his inner outer dialogue is great in this movie yeah. too. Right. It's like, why didn't you do something? Cause then you'd be done, dead too, asshole. Like, you know, the, yeah. all that back and forth is great. Cause then it also showcases him as somebody who is definitely experiencing periods of self doubt as he goes through this. Right. He's not, he doesn't have all the answers. He's just trying to make it up as he goes and he does a pretty good job. This is all very fresh and new to see. And so it was such a huge change of pace from all of the Stallone and Schwarzenegger action movies. Yeah. So it's really no wonder that, you know, everyone lapped it up. Yeah. But also everything they include in the movie is like relevant to a certain degree, right? Like it's not like throwaway lines or not throwaway scenes. Beginning intros, like what, like it's a pretty long intro with the uh, credits, like eight minutes, something like that, nine minutes. But it sets up everything. The intro starts with him getting on the plane and then dropped off at uh, uh, Nakatomi. But it gives a whole backstory. He's this New York cop. He's meeting the wife. All of that aspect is covered. But then in that is also the jet lag scene. And then that turns out to be like, oh, he's now barefoot halfway through the movie. Right. That pays off later. Like they do all these like little things in it that really like piece it together. And it's not just like some weird throwaway line or something like that. Or I think the script is insanely smart. They do some very efficient you know, exposition, for example, right? So they have Takagi, uh, like, oh, he's like, oh, this is a great place you have here. And he replies and says, oh, it will be once, if we get it finished, several floors are still under construction, right? Yeah. That's all he has to do is have that as a throwaway line. And then that sets the sort of the framework for what the rest of the building, you know, is going to look like. Yeah. Um, or the other one that's interesting is where Theo is in the beginning. He's really quickly going through and he's locking down the elevators and you see him lock down some elevators all the way and then other ones from, you know, night, the floor, the 29th floor up to the top of the building or whatever it is. And they don't, you know, he doesn't say anything out loud. You just kind of see it flash, but then it really sets up, it kind of defines the sort of the claustrophobic parameters of the universe that McLean's going to have to navigate. And it's just done super, super efficiently. It's really impressive. 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 Most impressive. <laughs> Wrong movie. So I had one more thing that I noticed that I thought was interesting, and I, I didn't pick up on this until last night. It was, I, had, I had several epiphanies watching this movie before he sends the plastique down the elevator shaft, and he notices and he watches the elevator go by and you see the light, right? So then he basically puts together, which I didn't, I didn't even put this together myself until watching it. He sees the elevator go, and then he sees the missile shot into the car afterwards, right? So he puts those two things together and said, okay, whatever floor they're down on is where they're actually firing the missiles from. 
And then that gives him the justification for dumping the, pla- the plastic explosives down the elevator shaft. Now, didn't really put that all together until last night in terms of the fact that... Because I've, I've always wondered why they showed the elevator the way that they did. And now I understand. I have a small nit with that one. Just because, one, it'd be hard to time the C4 to go off at that floor. Also, how does he know what damage the C4 is going to do? It's, it's not it's not timing. It's that there's a detonator in it and the pressure impact blows it up. So when it hits the ground, it just blows up. But wouldn't yeah. that be at the bottom floor? Like, why would it take those other guys out who were up on whatever No, floor? That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because the elevator stops because the, the they set up the, the floor at which the elevator is going to go to. Oh, because it, it the hits terrorists the, go down. So that, the top that of the elevator? That establishes the top of the elevator. So that's that's what he uh, throws it to. That's okay. an example. Of like, oh my god, that's pretty smart. But <laughs> also, know? like the outside, it looked like it was a lot lower. The damage that was being done. That it, I would agree with. Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like it. It looked um, like it was only like eight floors off the ground or something. Yeah. Not at the like thirtieth or something. But is the building on fire? No, but it's going to need a paint job and a shitload of screen doors. <laughs> that's a great line. Ah, <laughs> uh, fantastic. Yeah. So the so the intelligence of the script was the other thing that I was going to point out. I think that the villain, so Hans Gruber, and just the the bad guys and the environment that it gets set up. So the claustrophobia is one of the things that sets us apart. So you have a very kind of narrow landscape that he has to navigate and you know work his way through. By the way, I also found out apparently the the scene where he falls and he misses the first vent and then keeps falling. Th- that apparently was actually a stuntman or a stunt that went wrong. So the stuntman was supposed to jump and actually hang on to the vent and he missed and he fell. And then they decided to edit in him catching the second vent, which of all the things in terms of where they stretch believability. Yeah, that one's probably hard to uh, accept. But I just thought it was interesting that the scene that you see is because the stuntman actually fucked up the jump. I, I love that they kept it in. Because it, that's an amazing stunt. I mean, your heart drops when he when he misses. Yeah. So it's just really, I don't know, great decisions about what to what to change. I think they were adapting the script as well, like as they went along. I didn't read too much into it. I mean, little things like that. It just speaks to the intelligence of McTiernan and the editors. Yeah, oh, definitely. And then Hans Gruber himself, obviously, is a villain. We talked about it a little bit up front, but you know, he has a he has a really solid plan. So that's that's pretty cool. He comes across a very simultaneously elegant, but he has that smart-ass side. But Jan de Bon or McTiernan, not sure who made the decision, about the way that they set it up so they give him authority in the movie. So, for example, when the truck pulls into the garage and it opens and starts walking, you know, he's in the front, he's walking very purposefully. When he goes up to the Nakatomi Christmas party, they have this great moment where the, these two guys on either side of him slide out with machine guns and then he steps forward. And just the way that they shoot that, it's very much intended to give you a sense of, okay, this guy is in charge, he's the He's the number one guy and he's on top of his shit. That plus everything else that they allow him to do in terms of, you know, the way that he messes with Ellis or just, you know, some of the smart ass lines are just Alan Rickman as Hans. Like Hans Gruber has to be one of the greatest film villains of all time. Oh, absolutely. Totally. And the, one of the things I really like is they set it up early on with Takagi that, okay, these guys are terrorists, but they're not just like mindless terrorists. They're very sophisticated. And Gruber is very sophisticated. Like when they're in the elevator, he, he just says as an, as an aside to Takagi, nice suit. Nice suit. John Phillips, London. I have two myself. Rumor has it, Arafat buys his there. <laughs> it's just like, a, you just like know who this guy is all of a sudden. Colin, did you like the, the line after that? It was uh, delivered in a very similar tone as the uh, Princess Bride. I can talk globalization in men's fashion all day, but I have a, <laughs> I have a building to terrorize. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anything else you want to say about just villainy here or Hans Gruber or anybody else? They really did a good job of just showing he also means business. He's not fucking around. Like shooting Takagi was one, but then like just dropping Ellis. I think Takagi was kind of off scene maybe. Maybe like they focused on McLean when he got shot. They, they, the blood spatter they, actually hit the window. Yeah, they just show the blood spatter. Yeah. But yeah. in uh, with uh, Ellis, they show Gruber holding the gun and shooting him. They show that he's definitely ruthless and the dude's not fucking around. Yeah. And he's also, he's, he's supremely confident when he's talking about the plan with the FBI, calling in the FBI and everything. And he says, like, by the, and, and blowing the roof, he says, by the time they figure out what went wrong, we'll be sitting on the beach earning 20%. You know, so... <laughs> He's he's just this really shrewd guy, but at the end he's also and like he's he's got a big ego. So Holly says to him, like you know, at the at the end when they're trying to to make off with what money that they have, she says, "After all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thief." I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean, and since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. And I love when he says, no, I am an exceptional thief. Except he says, and I'm moving up to kidnapping. Dude, you just had, <laughs> you just committed double murder. That's a little bit higher than kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the Takagi scene with Alan Rickman as Gruber is is really good because the absolute casual nature with which he ends up shooting him, it just gives you a sense that, oh, okay, this guy is really, you know, yeah. he is dangerous. You got, you got to watch out for him because he really truly doesn't care or i mean he's, he's fine with just murdering people <laughs> so yeah you didn't know like how far they were willing to go before that scene you didn't know yeah, like, what sort of kind of terrorists are they are they gonna be yeah you kind of assume okay is he just threatening him is he gonna scare him yeah. that, that kind of thing can, can we talk about the incredulous nature of the lapd yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah jump to whatever you want yeah i mean this is just i mean they're just oh, in my man. mind we're just, we can just talk about things that we liked about the movie this is the these this police force it does not take anything seriously at all. <laughs> they don't really seem to be that hardy, you know. They they got the uh, the SWAT guys running up to the uh, oh, to the no, building. Like, and the guy, like snags himself on like some thorns. He's like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> this movie actually kind of takes a cut out of you know a few swipes at kind of the macho hero, right? So one is just you have McLean just getting more and more banged up as he goes through it. Yeah, you definitely have the the the, the SWAT dude with his hitting his hand on the uh, the rose bush. But then, so so obviously Dwayne Robinson as the uh, as the commander on site, <laughs> who's just an asshole like from moment one and doesn't believe anything like you said. Or every government official with authority in this movie is basically portrayed as a moron, basically. Wouldn't you think? Yep. Oh, oh totally. Sure. Yeah, and that's you know obviously very intentional. As I say, it starts with the nine one one call too, right? Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Tell you one thing, you know, you know who did not understand this movie or the, the way that the comedy was being used was Roger Ebert, who gave Die Hard two stars upon its initial release. And he said, uh, the, the reason why he gave it two stars, and I, I lifted this from his review, is he says, as nearly as I can tell, the deputy chief in this movie is only there for one purpose, to be consistently wrong at every step of the way and provide a phony counterpoint to Willis's progress. The character is so willfully useless, so dumb, so much a product of, his, of the idiot plot syndrome that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Thrillers like this need to be well-oiled machines with not a single wasted moment. Inappropriate and wrong-headed interruptions reveal the fragile nature of the plot and prevent it from working. But you can also see there, I think, one of the big weaknesses of the movie, and that's the idiotic behavior of the Los Angeles Police Department. There was one character in this movie, a deputy chief, whose actions are so stupid and so unmotivated and wrong-headed 
that finally he just brings the movie to a stop every time he opens his mouth. Bad writing. He always says the wrong thing. He understands nothing. And with a movie like this, once you start picking out the loopholes, and there are a lot of them, it doesn't matter how good the stunts or the special effects are, or even how good Bruce Willis is. You just can't stay interested. Wow, is that a bad take? Oh my God, Roger Ebert, you missed this one, dude. You're, he's way off. He doesn't know. He just doesn't get it at all. I mean, he I, really just doesn't get it. Uh, Dwayne Robinson's definitely. If if we do the quote pool, he's he's winning. He's in the final bracket. All for him. <laughs> Maybe not LAPD, but he's definitely a badge. How do you know that? A hunch. Things he said, like being able to spot a phony ID. Jesus Christ, Powell. Give me a fucking bartender for all we know. TV's here. Oh, shit. Yes, sir. Now, you listen to me, mister. I don't know who in the hell you think you are or what you're doing, but you just destroyed a building. Now, we do not want your help. Is that clear? We don't want your help. I've got 100 people down here, and they're covered with glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Who the fuck is this? This is Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, and I am in charge of this situation. Oh, you're in charge? Well, I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. From up here, it doesn't look like you're in charge of jack shit. You listen to me, you little asshole. I'm a asshole? I'm not the one who just got buttfucked on national TV, Dwayne. <laughs> Holy Christ. I'm gonna need some more FBI guys, I guess. The problem is I don't know that with the quote pool that are you ever gonna are you gonna uh, is anything gonna beat out Yippie Kaye motherfucker? Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippie Kaye motherfucker. Well, that that's, that's unpopular, but no, I I, I mean yes, it's not the best because quote. I don't I think that's one of like the worst quotes. No, no, I mean I. I personally think like Rivers Rodriguez report. <laughs> I think that's better. <laughs> Rivers, begin your reconnoiter. Begin your reconnoiter. It was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Yeah. Not a creature was stirring except for the four assholes coming in the rear in two by two standard cover formation. The funny thing is they it's just like then they cut to the guys and it's just like four guys sprinting across the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> that's standard two by two cover yeah. formation, yeah. I guess. Anything else we want to talk about? Dwayne Robinson, just his uh, complete disbelief of anything that's going on from Powell. But what about the body that hit the car? Well, it could be a depressed stockbroker. He's actually <laughs> dismissing <laughs> anything that's going on. Like he's just like, I'm not going to pay attention to any evidence that's happening around us. And yeah, like, I, I do have to say he he does pull off some of the best lines. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> like, he also his line his line when Gruber falls. Yes, it's so I, great. I, that's not a hostage. <laughs> you know, That's by the so way, when good. they dropped uh, when they dropped Alan Rickman, they dropped him earlier than they were going to tell him they were going to drop him. So that uh, reaction's real. So when you see the reaction, it's real because it was one of those things where it was it was kind of like, okay, we're going to do it on three, and then they just did it on one <laughs> just to capture his face. Nice. So. That's, see, that's that's just like brilliant because. Yeah you see that look on his face and you're like, oh my God. I would say just for the, to defend Dwayne Robinson a little, this is 1988. And so whatever, 13 years before 9-11. And so there hadn't been any real terrorist activity in the US. So like it would definitely seem 
unplausible at that time to actually have a terrorist event such as this. But still, when the building's like, you know, <laughs> I just figure if you got a guy that just just shot up one of your one of your cars with a machine gun and then yeah. another dead body got thrown out the window, like eh, probably something something's going on there. Strange yeah, exactly. things are afoot at Nakatomi Plaza. It's, yeah. it's not I just mean, a look, depressed uh, stockbroker jumping off the building. <laughs> I, I, you know, given given the LAPD back in the eighties, I I totally could see them just saying fuck it we're going in and and then yeah. the, the prematurely sending in the car after that the first uh assault didn't work and then having it the quarterback is toast the uh, have themselves an rv yeah they got butt fucked on national tv <laughs> <laughs> so there's also there's another funny scene with that i think one of the assistants come up to dwayne robinson and like oh the fbi are here the fbi are here now he's like all trying to like straighten himself up you want a breath man do you want a breath man? <laughs> yeah exactly just the way he said it too is just hilarious. like of course the fbi are here like why did it take him so long to even respond is like the the news had it all on tv already and like everyone else was like swarming fbi took a bit of time to get there i also kind of like how they take Dwayne robinson's character and they after the fbi shows up and he gets undercut a little bit all of a sudden he's trying to you know, cozy up to Powell just a little bit. Oh, for sure. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't like the Sarge. Like all of a sudden they're there together now, right? After he was acting like an asshole. And I, I love it when the FBI just basically waltzes in. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. No relation. <laughs> <laughs> Those two guys are great. You go from like awesome scene to awesome scene to awesome scene to awesome right. scene. I'm actually more interested in what are your nitpicks because I really have no nitpicks with this movie. Well, so you want you want to go first, Mark? I mean, except for when Hans tells Carl to to shoot the duck. Oh, I mean, shoot the glass. Schuster Feinstein, records only. Shoot the glass. Couple skate. <laughs> One thing I really did like the the music. I thought the uh, was fantastic. The way they kept oh, the joy carried through the whole film, and even like it was like really ominous when the like terrorists were taking the building. It was just like slightly in the background of that. I thought that was done really really well yeah you know one thing i didn't realize when they go to the nakatomi safe the first time around and it, it's not open right so they're talking about the the problem of getting breaking into it you hear oh to joy but it's super super faint right yeah. and so that sets up what happens when the when the vault is open and they blast it at you and it's just right. it's such a like that's an example of just some pretty awesome filmmaking right just a yeah. little way to tie it together and i don't know it just i was just so impressed when i rewatched this no, they did a really good job. The nits, I have um, Argyle was locked in the garage. Easily, he could have smashed out of there with the uh, limo. And he actually ends up doing that at the end. That was one I wasn't quite, not that it would make too much of a difference. I think he was just being a little, he didn't want to risk anything. There was no, you know, the, the place yeah. was surrounded. It was, he was relatively safe at that point. It was a minor nit, minor nit. But he does it at the end anyways. The funny thing though, when uh, Dwayne Robinson- I think he was I, also like way stoned at the time. <laughs> <laughs> when- Dwayne Robinson first gets on scene. He's actually sitting in the backseat of the car so they can both get out of the car at the same time, which just seemed so weird to me. I don't know if that was uh like you see them both coming out of the car. Maybe <laughs> wait, what? I don't even you know, know what you're talking you about. You know, you're you're right, man. This movie is awful. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it awful. is so flawed. <laughs> it was just a minor nit, I said. Like if you're riding two police officers in the car, like they're to be both in the front you seat. You mean no? front seat and backbeat? Uh, so front seat, yeah. backseat. Well, yeah, yeah, no, he's a pompous ass. He so wants he, to be chauffeured he, around, even though driver. it's just a regular old I think you know, squad just, car. Or, or I think uh, they wanted them to like screech up, and they both come running out of the car at the same time. But and they're on the side of the camera. Minor. I, minor think, I think that's probably what it was. That um, he's he's just a pompous ass. Uh, the feds. Why did feds get to, take so long to get there? Why did uh, Han, when Hans was pretending he was Bill Clay? 
he palms the cigarettes. So he takes them to clean cigarettes. And <laughs> if you notice that, oh, no, I didn't notice that. <laughs> Clean offers him the cigarettes, and then he palms them all. He takes the whole pack. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Uh, Wait, th- what? I don't understand. McLean had cigarettes. Like he pretended he was Bill Clay when he met him at the thing. Oh, so uh, and oh, he offers when, him a cigarette. Uh huh. He gives and, him the pack. Uh huh. Oh, and then and oh, he and takes John, one out and, and John... he puts it, and then Gruber right. <laughs> puts it in his pocket. Oh, <laughs> uh, oh, uh, okay. I did have one question, I guess, when I when I was rewatching that scene, which was, you know, why does McLean toy with him the way that he does? And you know, you realize he's actually trying to get more information. He's trying to get some information out of him potentially. But knowing that this guy is going to pretend to be Bill Clay, and at that point he knows as Bill Clay, if he's playing this character at that point, that he's not actually going to volunteer any information. Why wouldn't McLean at that point just say, "I know you're full of shit," and you know, put the gun to his head and say, "Tell me what's going on"? I think there was—I don't think he knew who he was. There was there was an outside chance that he was Bill Clay. Yeah, I don't think he knew who he was. Oh, I wasn't. I thought he. I thought he kind of figured it out right away. Well, I think he was. You know. He, he was he, he was suspicious. He, he didn't yeah. he didn't know. He was okay. yeah, well, of course that's, he's, that's, that works. Which is why, you know, it gives him a gun without any bullets in it yeah. and then and then lets him give up his um position. All right. So my only real nit is at the very end if we want to get to that. Yeah. Or if you want to go first. If you had anything. No, I, so I, I think that honestly where the only thing that maybe doesn't totally work in this movie is at the end when McLean is coming out of the building and the moment where he sees Powell. I think that they hold that interaction between the two of them for maybe one beat too long. The eye gaze and, and how they come together. And, and then, of course, it, re- it results in Powell doing the shooting, which is a little contrived. Um, that does happen in the book. That I happens t- in the book, right? I, I won't tell you exactly what happens because it's a little I different. I know what happens. You know what happens? Yeah. I know what happens. I, I read a, Wikipedia. Oh. That's, that's oh. the part I don't like. The, I don't mind the, the, their interaction because they didn't know who they were. So it seemed like, okay, are you him? Because they only talked on the radio. The Carl coming out with the gun, and to me, that was just lame. That was just like not, they didn't need that at all. I do have one question there, which is also, it's, it's done very purposefully when the terrorists or when they're getting ready to blow the roof and McLean is up there and he's sending the, the hostages back down the stairway. They actually show you the shot of Carl still hanging there in the chains. And, and I, I, that's one thing that I always didn't quite understand, like why you would do it that way, because you know, McLean, I think it would actually, it would have made more sense, right? If McLean had wrapped him with, up with the chains and threw him into the wall, and then upon the hostages down, running down the stairs, too. what you saw was that he wasn't there. And it's like, okay, that means that Carl's still alive. But yeah. they show you that he's still there. And then to have him show up at the very end, yeah. I, I just I thought that was an interesting choice. I don't think they needed that kind of finish, though. I think they could have just done with, like, it already, you already had the Gruber kill. You didn't need the second boss kill, whatever. Yeah, it does, does follow the book. So Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it was fine. Yeah. I think it was totally fine. I mean, I think that the fact that they didn't follow it to the letter is was a good call. I won't say anything about it. That's fine. I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. All right. My other one then is, uh, did Notre Dame ever play USC on Christmas Eve? Uh, no. Okay. I think no. It seems like, would they play, like, I guess if, if they were in LA, they would play a late night game. But it seems but that was, but year, that, was right? a, that was a real telecast of the, of the game. But no, not that late in the year. But I always looked it up to see, like, oh, is that actually the right, um, like, which game is that? What I thought was pretty interesting was that Theo and um, Carl walk into the lobby and he's describing the Lakers game. Yeah. That, that That's actually a real Lakers game that he's describing. Oh, really? Did, did yeah. you hear the ringers take on that? I think yeah. Simmons, I think Simmons, like, figured was, out exactly what game they were talking about. He did. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was on, on the rewatchables that, that I heard that. It was like, 
Wow. That's yeah. funny. All right, so other nitpicks, maybe? <laughs> Move on from... Why do they have six hundred game football history? Why do they have six hundred fifty million dollars in bonds in a building that's being built? Okay, here's here's a question. Uh, this one's thrown out from uh, Emily. Emily wants to know what the fuck is up with bearer bonds? What are bearer <laughs> bonds, and why do they show up all over the the eighties movies like Die Hard and Beverly Hills Cop and like a bunch of other movies? Or they were stolen from the back of the, uh, the armored car in the beginning of the heat, the first heat attack. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, I'm anyone, not familiar anyone? with what bearer bonds are. I'm sorry, I can't tell you how they work. I think I think they're totally made up f- for the movies, so that the movies don't have to get like a bunch of real money. No, nah, it's I don't real, think so. No, I, I'm kidding. I but I really don't. I, I know there is such a thing as it, but I, um, I think they use it as a means to not have. So you can have a vast sum of money and not need to have like ten pallets of hundreds or something, right? If you need six hundred fifty million dollars in bills. I assume that all those would actually be, you know, individually coded and they'd be insured and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't sure if you could ever, like, how would you spend them? I'm, I'm rolling to the grocery store with some bearer bonds. I don't know. Well, you're no help to Emily. No, I'm sorry. They're not used that much anymore. I don't think it's a common... Uh... Everyone just uses Venmo now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just PayPal me that? Trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to raid Nakatomi building and need some quick cash, everybody. <laughs> Venmo me, me the money. Well, you know, my, my nitpick, what I was talking about last night, Colin, and I, I probably will go back and look at it again, but I think the angle from the guy, like when McLean is smashing the window because he's trying to get uh, the attention of the police, from the position where the people are on the roof, I don't think they could see him. So that that is what I think doesn't really work. Because wait, the, wait, wait, wait. So, so, so set this up again. If you look at the way that the 20th Century Fox building is in terms of the roof, right? So, the, so the, the broader part of the building is on the bottom. It goes towards more of a pyramid structure at the top. Yeah, yeah no, I know, I know the physical. Right. But, but set up the, the scene that you're talking about. So the scene is where McLean, is, he's, he takes the chair and he goes to smash out the window because he's trying to, he wants to get attention to the police officer. And what mm-hmm. you see is you see the terrorists. You mean to Al, who's driving around down? Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the terrace on the roof, and they look as if, or wait, they're trying to communicate as if they're actually seeing. Oh, the camera pans them. down, and they yeah. see, and you see the the window get smashed out. I don't think the geography actually works correctly. Like, I don't, Do you, I don't think the people so, on the roof could see him because I think the where he is, he'd be in a, a part of the building that is further out to begin with. So, so I don't yeah, know how they could do yes. it. Yes. So now I have to I have to ask: Was it intentionally set up where, when the camera pans down to look? at to see this, that it's actually that we're supposed to say, oh, that's from the perspective of one of the terrorists. That's what I thought when I looked at it. So that's, I'm, I'm going to go back and take a look at it again, just as a point of curiosity. But I just thought it was interesting because so much of the movie is otherwise so geographically specific and you feel like it's very everything that's happening is valid. So it just it seems like a weird um, and it's, it's a super minor nitpick drops the movie all the way down to a 99 percent from a 100. I feel like I, I've thought about the same thing i want to i want to pull up that scene just so i can because if they were on the roof if they were like terrace on the roof then i'd say oh 100 but if they were maybe looking down from like maybe a higher a higher floor i think it's plausible they're wiring the explosives on the helicopter pad right and the helicopter pad is a subset of the broader roof structure and that roof structure is smaller than the external part of the building so that's why i just don't think it works then yes, I would say that you're absolutely right. Uh, my only other observation that I had was that McLean smoking is a bad idea in the places where he's hiding from the terrorists because, you know, you walk around a corner, oh, someone's smoking. I guess he's over here. I just think that that's, you know, 
as a strategic thinking uh, exercise, that's probably not the best thing to do when you're trying to hide is to fire up a cigarette. It's my only other observation. Colin, mm -hmm. I, have, I have your answer on a bearer bond. A bearer bond is a bond issued by a government or corporation. And it's basically, it's different than other investment securities that is not tracked, is not records of its uh, transactions aren't kept. So that's why it's a bearer, like whoever holds the instrument and bears that instrument means that they are the owner of the of it. So if you have the treasuries or if you have these stock certificates, then there's no record prior to you owning it. So you, you just have to uh, bear that instrument and then you get, you can redeem it. So previously U.S. Treasury was done in that, but the last U.S. Treasury has matured in 2016. And then all like bearer bonds are like cert since 1982, they, their usage has like fallen, fallen out of uh, use. So people- hmm. Colin has fallen out of use? U.S. Treasury before all bonds used to be issued with that. So does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, that answers the question. So there's no transaction record of bearer bonds holding the bond itself, the piece of paper. You are the bearer of that bond. So you have the, uh, that's your ownership, right? Whoever can give it across. That's what it means. Thank you, Wikipedia. There you have it. As of March, 2020, there's only 87 million outstanding bearer bonds. You can pass it on to Emily. Now, can we talk about the equities and commodities markets for a few minutes? If you like. Let's, um, let's talk about the security guards at Nakatomi Plaza. Okay. First general impression is that it would really suck to be a security guard at Nakatomi Plaza. Okay. Also, why did the one knit I had, why does he make him look up the name when he knows there's only one group, <laughs> one party there? Exactly. Oh, yeah. They're the only people in the building. They're on the 30th floor. Like, well, why do you make him look shit up? Come on. Right. <laughs> I, I thought there was a little bit of a security protocol as well. Like he had to know the person he was looking for. No, he just said the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I he's, couldn't he's... find the name you're saying. Oh, let me scroll oh, that name. <laughs> <laughs> that guy was just sort of a, like the reception the, the reception guard was just sort of like a dick yeah he does that you know it's like obvious like the only people left are on the 30th floor at the christmas party and then he says the whole you know touch pad john says a cute toy and he says yeah if you ever have to take a leak it'll help you find your zipper and then he goes about and, and says like doesn't give him the information about the 30th floor i i particularly i don't mind that that guy was shot yeah, he does kind of come, come across as a bit of an asshole. You know, uh, that reminds me, one of the things I read was that one version of the script, and I'm wondering if this is a little bit of a hangover from that, but the Nakatomi Tower was supposed to be controlled by a supercomputer. Mm. Oh, so was, interesting. Was, so there was a super, it was like a supercomputer-fueled skyscraper, and that was somehow going to factor into the shenanigans. Hmm. Well, certainly they had a very sophisticated you know, elevator system. I think that would have helped, though. I think if they somehow worked it in, I'm not saying they should have, but it could have helped, like, okay, this is why they have the money in the building anyways because they've like they have this computer now it's running it's like super safe and secure which they kind of allude to with the safe and all that stuff but it's still an unfinished building i don't know it, i don't know actually i'm glad they didn't do it because it, it might have leaned towards terrorists have taken over nakatomi plaza but the building fights back <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think it needed it when they put out the casting call for that particular Security guard, did they actually say must resemble Huey Lewis? No, that's that's the terrorist. Too, no, that's uh, a terrorist guy. Yeah. That's no, no, Eddie, I'm sorry. Ed, I meant Eddie that. I meant that when they replaced him, right? So when they replaced yeah, yeah, him, yeah. did they, you know, for the the the, the terrorist? Like, like, all right, can you uh, can you sing the? Let, let me hear a few bars of the Power of Love. All right, you're in. <laughs> I know it's it's funny because I always think of him as Huey Lewis. And I just today learned his name is Eddie. 
I know. I just thought the Huey Lewis security guard. If you say that to somebody like who's watched Die Hard, they'll go. They'll just shake their head and go, "Oh yeah, no, that guy. I get it." I love the terrorists personally. I love. <laughs> so I'm going to just take that clip dull, and dull uh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that in different uh, different podcasts. Oh, all kinds of opportunity. I personally love Tony, who's Carl's brother. The fire has been called off, my friend. No one is coming to help you. You might as well come out and join the others. I promise I won't hurt you. And then he cocks his rifle. <laughs> and not only does he cock his, cock his rifle, but he jumps behind jumps the, the and just starts shooting right away, right? Yeah, that's... <laughs> you know what I thought was interesting? Both so they And I, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but he approaches very, you know, sort of slowly, cautiously. And the, the, the first attack scene on the roof where McLean's running across, Carl also has that moment where, for whatever reason, he's walking really, really slowly he, across He's stalking the roof. him. He's yeah, stalking he's, him. So he's stalking him. So there's a little bit of that. They have like both brothers have a little bit of that similar energy, which I thought was interesting. I think those two guys are probably the smartest of the terrorists. Like they, 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 they probably were in Hans's, you know, West German Volksbrei movement yeah. terrorist cell or whatever it was. Whereas the other guys like Heinrich, Tony and Marco, they're like guys that got through connections back in Europe. And they're like, you want to join us? You want, um, do you want the prequel? You want to see like him putting the band together? Uh, that would be that would be a totally cool movie. Like <laughs> from the terrorist perspective, we're going to take down Nakatomi Plaza, but uh, that would be actually really cool. How about how about a ten episode Netflix series? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys, I didn't mean to steal your shit, but, but it would be it would be pretty fun. But like like I I could I could watch the terrorists all day. I mean they Marco, where are you going, pal? No more table. And then Fritz. They're using artillery on us. No, you idiot. It's him. It's not the police. It's him. Just all the great, like, you know, running through the, the hallways with um, with missiles and stuff. And all right. Yeah, yeah, I see him when he looks through the uh, scope of the missile. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Good, good shit. And I'll, I'll just throw out a couple interesting little trivia notes, too. So Clint Eastwood, apparently, he had the rights to the book. I, I don't know when it, when it reverted back to, or when he sold it to 20th Century Fox, but apparently he was originally planning to film the the book version and play himself in the role in the early 80s which would have been pretty interesting <laughs> a, a clint eastwood directed version of what you know what would, would have been diehard with the older character could have been pretty cool actually that might have been interesting i i would love to see a remake with done that way that would be really cool it's a different i mean movie, but yeah it's a, it's a different movie but it would be a really interesting movie i'd sort of be like halloween and then rob zombies halloween I really do think we should do those too as a point of comparison to be fun. I'm uh, up for it. Or maybe like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and then Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, but maybe not because it was basically shot for shot. Shot for shot, same thing. Yeah. 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 A couple other trivia points. So uh, Akagi is the password, right? So you guys know that that was one of the carriers that attacked Pearl Harbor. I thought that was sort of yeah. funny. Yeah. And then there are apparently three Playboy bunnies in this film. So there's the uh, there's the one that John McClane taps when he's going by hello ladies or hello girls there is the the woman who is uh, partially undressed in the uh, office in the beginning and then the woman who runs and jumps on the guy at the airport when he turns and says california you know uh, all three of those are those, those are the three playboy bunnies that show up in the movie so i thought that was kind of funny it's interesting and I, I i'd never even thought about it but is that something you track uh no it's something i found on a when i was doing my diehard research was it diehard research or was it something else? <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, I believe in combining things. So. <laughs> look, look, for, look for more value to come out of whatever your experience is. 
One one of the scenes I did enjoy was the uh, when the terrorist when they're waiting for the uh, police to come in and the terrorist uh, kind of holds up at the little uh, stand in the uh, hallway. He like looks down and sees the uh, the candy there. He's like, mm, all right. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's Al Young, I think, right? That's yeah, a, yeah. that might Al be his Young, name. Yeah. Wooly, takes a Wooly candy the bar. terrorist. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you know what's you know what I thought about what I appreciated about that is that they show him kind of looking down. You see him grabbing the candy bar, and then when the guys are actually coming up, he's he's, he's, eating, him, he's eating it. He's like halfway through a crunch bar. That's great. Do Do you think when he like looked down, he sort of like looked like, should I take this? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, exactly. is it okay? It's like, yeah, yeah you you're a terrorist. You just took over the building. I think you can pretty much do whatever you want. Right. No one's gonna like no one's gonna arrest you for stealing a candy bar. Well, there's that there's... moment, and that that kind of that kind of actually reflects the moment where McLean is in the uh, stairwell after he has had the you know the first uh, killed the first terrorist, and you see him. He pulls the lighter out of the guy's pocket, and he kind of does that same sort of unconscious glance glance around, and then he sticks it in his pocket. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it's fun. And these are all like very purposeful things too, because you know, you, you know, like the music kind of goes along with it. You know, like, yeah, for sure. Really, really good stuff. It's those details I think that make it the that take it to the next level. I really like. Yeah. I was gonna say I for, I forgot to mention some stuff when we're talking about um, Bonnie Bedelia as, as Holly. She's kind of a like a she's she's tough, right? I mean, even Alice said it like she was like really tough businesswoman yeah uh, and it, it it sort of comes out she's kind of a badass um there's there's some stuff you know we all know the phone call with uh paulina right lucy McLean. yeah it's, it's like it's, she, she just kind of hangs up on her you mean yeah she's like uh paulina's like see mrs holly i do that already what would i do without you paulina and then she just hangs up Plunk. on her yeah. <laughs> Well, and there's the, there's the scene where she goes in to, to, to talk to Hans and he, you know, what idiot left you in charge? And then she puts it right back in his face. Yeah. You did when you murdered my boss. And you see him, he kind of like perks up. He's like, oh, okay. There's, there might be somebody interesting to talk to here. And then um, I forget what led up to that particular comment. I think it was like, who's in charge now? Um, the, you know, the, the hostages were talking amongst themselves or something. Uh, someone was worried about getting killed or like taking charge or something. And she says like, tell that to Takagi. <laughs> yeah. Just good stuff from her. And of course, uh, one of her better lines when the, her secretary asks, do you think the baby can handle a little sip? She says, that baby is ready to 10 bar. Yeah, no, she's she's good. And I, I, her strength is fun. I do love the the end of the movie, too, where the, the moment where McLean comes around the corner, you know, Hans, and he's just, he's totally destroyed. And, you know, his shirt's all dirty and bloody and he looks like crap. And then he starts walking down the hallway and then he has that nice, fun little moment where he goes, hi, honey. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice oh, moment. Okay. I got a nitpick. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's a totally minor nitpick. And this is, when you texted me last night about a nitpick, I thought, God, there are no nitpicks. Uh, but the one that I... Well, maybe he's going to talk about this. That scene, it's the final confrontation with Hans. They make him, you know, drop his uh, machine gun. John puts his his hands, you know, behind his head. And then you see he's got like a, a gun taped to his back. Yeah. And the one thing I've always thought was he's so like sweaty and grimy. I really hope that that tape holds. <laughs> Because it would be really fucked up if if all of a sudden you hear this clank, clunk, gun <laughs> dropping uh, to the floor. He's like, oh, fuck. You know, it's funny. I just thought about this too. But is he? Does he grab the gun with the shoulder that he was shot in from Carl, mm, or is it the other one? He grabs it with his right hand, and doesn't he get shot in the right shoulder though? I don't know. I don't remember. Because if you have a bullet through your shoulder, the ability to reach down and grab the gun is also probably something that might be a little difficult. It, it must have been his left because there's like no way. Oh, you know, so something I want to mention just in terms of individual scenes, 
I had forgotten about the fight scene between McLean and Carl. Like that's actually that's a pretty good fight scene. It's it's pretty it, kind of brutal, right? It's they're just really getting going after each other and it's totally brutal. He, Carl's throwing McLean up against metal bars, like metal rails with sharp yeah. edges. And every time I see that, I'm like, ow. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking, I'm like, man, I don't remember this, the kind of the intensity of this fight. And I think maybe it's partially because it, it cuts between the, the fight that he's having while the, the gunships are coming in. So the fact that they have those two things, because if you think about it, the fact that he's fighting with Carl for the entire duration of that scene, that, that's a long fight. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty long fight. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, it's a good one. I liked it. <clears throat> I, I'm looking to see which shoulder he's... He got shot in, but honestly, I don't see any wounds. You sure he got <laughs> shot in the shoulder? He did get shot in the shoulder by uh, Carl. What the man in the shoulder? I don't know. I just see a lot of blood. Maybe it was. Maybe he got grazed in the shoulder. It looks like his right shoulder is grazed. Huey Lewis almost made it through this movie. Almost, and he took one to the yep. nugget before the end, uh, the end of the, uh, the fight. Um, okay, so I have basically gone through everything that I want to talk about with Die Hard. So this would be like just individual scenes or anything else you want to throw out there. So what do you got? I think we've covered my list. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of all over the place, but honestly, everyone's seen this movie. I don't. We don't need to go through a scene by scene. No. Um, there's just so much goodness to talk about throughout the, the entire movie. By the way, they built they built a prosthetic feet for Bruce Willis so he could run across the glass. So apparently if you watch the scene, uh, when you watch the scene, his feet are slightly weird looking because he has, they're slightly larger than normal because he has a uh, prosthetic coating on the bottom. He's got those hobbit feet from yeah, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Exactly. <laughs> so no, that was interesting. I actually uh, forgot a little bit about Dornberg and the whole thing. Yeah, we haven't really talked about him. It's not that great. I mean, it's fine. I think they could even do without the whole, like it doesn't add that much to the overall story, but uh, he's pretty funny. Well, what, 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 when she punches him in the nose on, on camera and he turns oh, yeah. around and, and to the camera, he's like, did, did you, you get, get that? that? Did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is like, oh, Atherton is so good. I didn't realize that he was, the part was as small as it was. I, I, I Maybe going back into it, not having watched it in a long time, I was thinking there was going to be more Thornburg than there was. Yeah. Uh, there was there was enough, just the right amount. So no yeah. complaints there. But uh, I, mean, I, I might have been confused because I actually think he has more screen time in the sequel. Uh, in Die Hard 2. Oh, he, yeah, because he's like sitting like he's right next to Holly on the plane, right? Yeah. Or he's, and yeah. He's, and then he, he takes the phone to the bathroom and he's doing a reporting from, you know, the using the air, airplane phone and then she gets him with the taser. Right. So <laughs> I think I've seen the sequels, but like I maybe once each. Like I well, I actually, that. I was really thinking that we should, it would be really interesting for us to do Die Hard with a Vengeance because that is one of the worst movies ever made. And so, and no, and no, no, I, no, you're, you're talking about, oh, I'm sorry. Movie. I'm sorry. Uh, Die Hard. What's uh, no, what's the last one called? Die what, Hard. Uh, uh, die a, hard a, for your a die bad hard day or? to die hard, I think, or something yeah, like that. Or? A good day to die hard. A good day to die hard. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've never seen it. Leave, I haven't seen that one. I don't think oh, you know seen... what? Oh, then we should, we should do it because Chris Rock. Is that with the Vengeance? That's Lethal Weapon 4. Ooh, it gets a 5.3. Yeah, 5.3 is being extraordinarily generous. This is more of like a 3.2 movie. It's it, Oh I, my God, I'm just reading. <laughs> John McClane travels to Russia to help out his seemingly wayward son, Jack. I'm sorry, was his kid's name Jack? O- only to discover that Jack is a CIA operative working undercover. <laughs> so what do you think is the best sequel of the two movies? Because it's only only two movies that you would consider for a sequel. So what do you think is better, two or three? I think three is a better movie, but I've seen two more often. Yeah, I would two, agree I, I, I like two. I just, I have not 
seen it in a, a million years. I, so I'd like to see it again. But I always sort of felt that Die Hard 3 was more in keeping with Die Hard, probably for obvious reasons. It was directed by McTiernan. You've got, um, it's a similar like terrorist who say they're terrorists. It's a similar terrorist hostage, hostage terrorist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Study exactly. and duality. But, the, but they're actually there to... Uh, knock off the federal reserve right and um and we were told that that's actually hans gruber's brother so it's also a revenge plot and it's got um samuel l jackson so you got it's a now it's a buddy team up uh, john mcclain and and uh, bruce wilson samuel l jackson so i really liked it and it takes place in new york and it's so it's 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 really interesting yeah die hard 2 was also uh, directed by rennie harlan yeah felt like it was Close, it was almost like Rennie Harlan trying to do a John McTiernan film. It was good, but a little weird. It's know. tough to follow. It, 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 it's a good. It was a good movie. I mean, it's a it's a good sequel. It's a pretty pretty decent sequel. It's it has some it has a little bit more darkness to it than you would expect. Too, it has the scene where the terrorist purposefully crashes a plane full of civilians, and you you see that happen. <laughs> That's dark. Uh, it's a little dark, right? And then there's the uh, the scene where they have the guy. I remember who's in the back of the truck and they're riding along, and he was a, a late member to join the unit, and so he's not in on the fact that they're. Oh, you're right. And so right, and yeah. so the, the guy who's just he just casually like pulls out a knife and just slits his throat when he's sitting right next to him. It's just that's a little bit you know a little dark. I remember thinking it was an Ed K movie. It's not a movie that I've gone back to uh, since. But I remember Die Hard, I thought Die Hard with a Vengeance with a, which was actually based on a script I think that was called Simon Says. So it was a situation where they took the script and adapted it adapted into a diehard movie so it was yeah. not um it was not written as a as a pure diehard movie I, I look forward to actually re-watching both of those do i want you to even watch the uh, the fifth diehard because i'm wondering if in any way it would uh, in some way take the sheen off of the original <laughs> i don't think that's possible but um it's it's really that bad of a movie it's terrible so tell me about live free or diehard because i don't think i saw that one either it's not as bad as the fifth one but it's it's also a really bad movie the main thing that it just really pisses me off about both those movies is that you know what makes john mcclain so compelling as a character is his everyman quality and when he gets to the fourth and the fifth movie in the franchise he's now like a legitimate superman you know he's jumping off of three-story buildings he at one point in the fourth movie he jumps onto the back of a moving fighter jet <laughs> so it's interesting because you know mctiernan wanted to go the opposite of where you know he wanted to be against kind of you know the the action hero paradigm that was in place for the you know the 80s of the big macho character and then he made this great awesome movie die hard and then character that he helped create all of a sudden by the fourth and fifth movie in the series become exactly that kind of thing that he didn't want to do so it makes it even more offensive which is why when you see the fifth one if you compare it to the first one you're like what the fuck am i watching this is just pure garbage uh, and it also has that guy what's his name is it, is it was it jai courtney in my personal opinion a terrible actor so it doesn't make it any better but yeah so, we, should, we, we should do it you should check it out because we i mean if you want to talk about the fact that we had fun you know ripping apart tango and cash we could rip apart the fifth die hard movie and have fun doing it so that, that would be the reason we would want to so uh, Live Free or Die Hard was directed by Len Wiseman, who's the, um, the the force behind the Underworld series. And um, so that makes a lot of sense. The, I, I think there's a reason why I haven't seen these movies, and that was it. Like, they, they were... <laughs> no, 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 not Len, not Len Wiseman. It was, it was the fact that no, um, like- they were so far from the original, um, uh, you know, recipe. Yeah, I think you made the right choice there. I I think for me, it was probably just sticking it out just out of curiosity to see what they were going to do with it. I had no expectations that it was going to be a good movie. The fourth one had the movie, or the fourth movie had the had Kevin Smith in it, which was, you know, an interesting <laughs> addition. 
to the franchise and the and the guy who I'm I can't blank it on the actor's name, but he was in the Apple commercials for a long time. Oh, Justin Long. Yeah, Justin Long. So yep. Jason Hughes. <laughs> The, the which only, is, you know, when I when I think about who I want, it's, who, it's like who I want, uh, you know, who I want Bruce Willis partnering up with. Uh, Kevin Smith and Justin Long are not the names that jump to jump to my head. Now, now here's James the Evan one Bob. thing. Here's the one thing that I I question about, like that would maybe make me want to watch Live Free or Die Hard, and that's that's got Timothy Oliphant, who I think plays the villain. Plays the villain, but it's a uh, you know it's because it's all about cyber terrorism and all that kind of stuff. He's basically you know in a room saying, oh, "Well, drop this, hack this, do this." It's just stupid. Uh, okay. It's a total waste of Timothy Oliphant. Oh, that's too bad. All right, well, you guys ready to wrap on Die Hard here? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Well, we hope you enjoyed our long, rambling, nostalgic conversation about Die Hard, the greatest action movie ever made. And uh, otherwise, I think we'll just say this is the Real DMC Podcast signing off. Bye, everybody. Merry Christmas. Shut it down. Shut it down now. Where are you going, pal? No more table. Vija, Vija, Vija. Max Nail. Max